0: All right. Good morning. Great to see you. Appreciate you being here this morning. And before we get started, I just want to say a word of thanks to uh, the, the people that showed up this past week and did all that work on the, on the uh, grounds around the, the building and all the landscaping. Thank you so much for doing that. I mean, you, you did a boatload of work, and it looks so much better. Thank you. It's nice to be able to see out my office window again. And, uh, yeah. And then like Mike was saying, we've got a big weekend next weekend uh, with the car show on Friday night uh, and uh, Friday evening, and hope you'll you'll come out and be a part of that. And then Sunday morning to having Jake with us and uh, in both services, and then the uh, meet and greet after the second service, so I we'll hope you'll come. Invite somebody to come next Sunday. Is that me? I'll try not to do that again. <laughs> okay. But I hope you'll be a part of that and invite someone to come. Today we're continuing our series, Sola. We've talked about Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. And today we're going to talk about the reason those are all true and the reason they're important, and that is because of Christ alone. You know, there's always been the temptation for people to add something to each of the alones, isn't there? You know, scriptures, not quite enough. We've got to add something there. We find some other book, some other teaching. Grace and faith, not quite enough. We've got to add something there. A lot of times we we think about people adding works to salvation. And that adding, that's true for Christ alone as well, as if who he is and what he did isn't quite enough. There's always been this temptation, To go looking for another experience that will somehow put us on a deeper level. Or to add certain bits of knowledge like the Gnostics did early on. You know, today you hear people teaching about how they're going to share five secrets to living in victory. Or ten principles to whatever. And we act like, boy, I've just got to get those things down. If I can just get those things down, then, then I'll start to live a fulfilled life. Let me share with you the secret to real spirituality. You, you, you ready for it? Here's the secret. There are no secrets. Okay. As we've, we've already got all that we need in Christ alone. You know, as I, as I seemingly often talk about, 2 Peter 1.3 tells us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. You know what that means? It means there's no need for extra rules to follow. It means there's no experience that we need to try to chase down, to gain, to put us on another level. It means there's no knowledge you need to learn other than to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Nothing better than getting to focus on him and that's what we get to do this morning. We're told in scripture to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at him, keep looking at him, make him the focus of our lives. After all, he's the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who created it, he's the one who accomplished it for us. And by keeping our eyes on him, we'll be encouraged and we'll be strengthened to keep running our race. So hopefully today you're encouraged We're not gonna deal with the totally baseless claim that people throw out there that Jesus never existed. I mean, that's just so far fetched. Not only do we have the testimony of scripture, which should be enough, but we've got statements from numerous ancient writers acknowledging his life. There's a long list of both Roman and Jewish writers not to mention all the other evidence, archeological and such. So it's clear, there's no real legitimate historian that would ever make that claim. So we're gonna move on from the false narrative. We're gonna talk about what's true, what Christ alone is really all about. And there are two aspects to that that we wanna cover. Those two aspects are the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, who Jesus is And what he did. And first we're talking about the person of Jesus. You know, from the beginning we know, scripture shows us that Jesus alone is what is needed for our salvation. We know in Acts chapter four, Peter and John have been arrested and and they're on trial after healing a lame man. And one of the authorities asked a question, he says, by what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter answers him in verse nine, he says, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, which, which I won't put out, I think Peter is being really sarcastic here, you know? He's like, really? You guys put me on trial for helping out a lame guy? What? If we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, and now he's not sarcastic, now he is deadly serious, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. He's the chief cornerstone. And once a cornerstone was set, it became the basis for determining every measurement in the rest of the construction. Everything was aligned to that stone. And so as the cornerstone of the church, Jesus is our standard of measure and enlightenment. And alignment, everything is dependent on him. Salvation is in Christ alone. But Peter, Peter wasn't the only one to make an exclusive claim about salvation in Jesus. Jesus himself said these familiar words shortly before he was arrested and crucified. John 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And. You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, and no one. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's an exclusive claim. That's why it's so important that our understanding of who Jesus is is correct. And there aren't multiple options. It's, it's a little like if, if we could go back in time, back to school, you know, and, and pretend it's test time. You, I, I know if you were, if you could imagine test time in school for a moment, you know, and the teacher's like, close your books, pop quiz, pull out your number two pencil. And, you know, and the anxiety starts to build, you know, and you start sweating a little bit. And you're hoping it's not an essay test because you, know, you don't know where to start or where to begin, end, and all that. There's, they, they have all these options, right? There's an the essay. There's true and false, what you're hoping for because you got a 50-50 chance there. And, and, there's, and, and, and there's fill in the blank. And then there's multiple choice. You know, it could be A, it could be B, it could be C. Sometimes they get down to the point where the teacher throws in E, all of the above. All of the above. And I got to tell you, we're living in a multiple choice world. And it's not just in the world that we, out there in the world that we think, it's, it's our spiritual choices as well. How we understand God, how we understand what it means to have a relationship with him, and how we understand who Jesus is. It's all multiple choice. Every, the other, everyone is just as good as the other. You know, in our, in our culture today, I think there's really only one thing we can all agree on is that we can't all agree on everything. We have no idea what we believe, so people say all the time there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I want to say, are you absolutely sure? Your truth is good for you, my truth is good for me, but what if? What if all the options aren't true? What if really only one of them is true? And there's only one true answer about Jesus the greatest heresies in the history of the church have been about the person of Christ the greatest heresies today are still about the person of Christ I mean you just think of all the cults name any one of them what do they have wrong among other things they've always got Jesus wrong When you think about Jesus' identity, who he is, you realize Jesus has the right to make an exclusive claim that he makes. If you took the writings of some of the people who don't even believe in him as Savior, even from their statements, you can see that Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. And think, about, think about Pilate who called him a man without fault. The French philosopher Diderot called him the unsurpassed. David Friedrich Strauss, a German theologian who denied the deity of Christ, called him the highest model of religion. The English philosopher John Stuart Mill said he's the guide of humanity. William Lucky called him the highest pattern of virtue. The French historian Renan said he was the greatest among the sons of men. The American transcendentalist Theodore Parker called him the youth with God in his heart. Francis Cobb described him as the regenerator of humanity. Robert Owen called him the irreproachable. I mean, this is pretty amazing. These are unbelievers, but their descriptions, as great as they are, they fall short. They aren't enough, are they? I mean, he's greater than what they describe him as. We know from scripture that Jesus is fully God. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. They're talking about the Father. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In another verse, he's called the image of the invisible God. He's fully God and fully man. He's 100%. He's not half God and half man. He's 100% fully God, fully man. We see that clearly, I think, in John 1. John 1, 1 that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's talking about Jesus, and he's calling him the Word. Why would he call him the Word? What's that about? Well, the word "word" was used to, in both the Greek and Jewish cultures to describe God's interaction with people. In addition to that, to the Jewish mind, it was also God's personal interaction with his people. So it's the perfect way to paint a picture of who Jesus is. He's God. God reaching out to us in a personal way. Now we see here that the Word's eternal. In the beginning was the Word. He already existed. When time started, when that first tick of the clock started on time, Jesus was already there. He had already existed for et- all eternity. He's eternal. And the Word was with God. He had an eternal relationship with the Father. And the Word was God. In his nature, he was 100% God. And then verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we know. He created all there is. And he brought life to his creation. I mean, that's the one we follow the eternal, life-giving creator of the universe, the one true God. That's who Jesus is. But he's not only God, he's also man. A few verses later in verse 14, we're told the word became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became one of us. He, be, he became flesh. He, the, the, John specifically uses that word that's so clearly pictures the weakness of being a man. In contrast to this eternal omnipotent God, he comes and becomes a man, weak man. And why is that important? What does that do for us? Well, Hebrews two seventeen says, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So, We we see in those verses why it's so important to us that Jesus became a man. He had to be made like us to be a merciful and faithful, to be merciful, that we would know that he understands, you know, people picture God and he is this great, omnipotent, omniscient God out there. And people say, well, he's so other than us, he couldn't possibly understand us. But that's not true of our God, is it? Why? because he became one of us we understand we know he's not just other than us he was one of us so that we could understand him as a merciful and faithful faithful to his father and faithful to us high priest high priest i mean he made the sacrifice right he not only made the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice for us. Making propitiation It's talking about satisfying God's judgment and his righteous requirement so that he could help those who are tempted. So they could help us i just finished a study in the book of hebrews in in the class i teach on sunday mornings and if you know that book you know one of the arguments the writer makes is regarding the supremacy of christ over any other option he's writing to primarily jewish people and so he talks about how jesus was superior superior to abraham and moses superior to the angels everything that they would have uh, have have looked at as high and holy He's saying, Jesus is better than this. The the sacrifice he made, his blood, better than the blood of bulls and goats. His covenant, his new covenant, better than the old covenant. It's all, why would you not follow him? And the argument goes the same today. There are no better options. He is absolutely the best. And it's only logical that you would follow him. It was true then, it's true today. No one compares to Jesus. As a person, Christ alone is what we need. But the idea of Christ alone is not only about the person, it's also about what he did for us. That in his death, he did what no one else could ever do. And what he gave us through that sacrifice was perfect, it was complete, it was enough, it's sufficient. That's why we don't need any other work We don't need some other experience. We don't need any other knowledge. We're complete in Christ. And all the benefits of Christ's work are ours. Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. So we're not lacking in anything. We're good to go, every spiritual blessing. And what are some of those benefits? What are the blessings that are given to us because we're in Christ? Well, we could name, let's just think about a few. Ephesians 1, seven says, in him we have have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption, redemption, which tells us, The picture there is of of the fact that we were in a sense slaves, we were in the slave market and Jesus went into the slave market, purchased us and set us free. We were enslaved to our sin, enslaved to ourselves, enslaved to all that is anti-God and he went in there and bought us, paid the price that we owed and took us out and set us free. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, we were released of all of them. Every last one, every single sin we've ever committed. What a relief. All the guilt that we could possibly carry, it's all gone. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of our trespasses is according to the riches of his grace. And how rich is his grace? I mean, you wanna know how, how completely we're forgiven? It's based on the riches of his grace. How rich is his grace? Well, it's, it covers everything we could possibly do wrong. When our sin abounds, his grace superabounds. It abounds all the more. That's what we got because of Christ alone. Redemption, forgiveness. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you're a Christian, because of Christ alone, the Spirit of God is living in you. Living in you to give you strength, to give you certain gifts to use, <clears throat> to provide you with wisdom, to convict you of sin, to give you assurance of your salvation. <clears throat> First it was the mic, now it's my voice. <laughs> the list can go on. But the Spirit, what this verse is pointing out to us, seals us. That seal is a mark of ownership. We belong to God. God. We belong to him and he has, he has set us aside. not only has he made us his own, but He's also a mark of security. That he's got us. Once we're saved, he keeps us. That's guaranteed. That's why Paul could say in Philippians one eight, I am confident of this, one six, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work in you. The day you trusted in him, he began that work. And guess what? He's going to finish it. He's going to bring you before him so you can stand in his presence. He's going to do that because of Christ alone. The salvation he's given to you and all the blessings ultimately will come to fruition when we stand in his presence. When you've got all of that, there's not much that can shake you. You can face anything in life when you understand Christ alone. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 128, in no way alarmed by your opponents, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. You know, We get all worked up about what's going on in the world. In one sense, the reality is it doesn't matter because we are in no way alarmed by our opponents. Why, because of Christ alone. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, right? Second Timothy 1.7, he's not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Christians don't have to fear because of Christ alone. And when we know that Jesus All that he has done for us has given us and the blessings he has has given to us. And then um, in addition to that, we are told in Ephesians 2.6, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated, spiritually seated with him in the heavens. We know that Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of heaven. we're waiting for the return of our Savior, and all that we've just been talking about and so much more, it's all guaranteed for us. We could go on and on. Hebrews 7:25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since He always lives to make intercession for them right now. Right now, whatever you've got going on in your life, right now, Jesus is making intercession. You know what that means? He means he's, he's requesting the Father for you. Whatever you're dealing with, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, is naming you and your needs and he's able to save forever. You remember the King James there? King James used the word, you're able, he's able to save to the uttermost. It's not a word we use you know, at all now, but boy, pretty descriptive, right? Save to the uttermost. He's able to save forever and to save completely, not only for all time, but in every way we are fully saved, all because of Christ alone. So think about it, knowing who he is and what he's done, knowing Christ alone, how does that impact our lives? What's it mean for how we live? Well, it should bring a hunger in us to know him more. Philippians chapter three, verse eight, Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I count all things lost. Remember, he's talking about all the good stuff that he had going for him in life. It's, a, it's, all, it's all loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. And then the next verse says, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, isn't that something? I mean, this is the great Apostle Paul, who knew Jesus deeply, but here he is expressing this great desire that I may know him. Why? I mean why would Paul say that? That I mean, because only Jesus could do what was needed, because only Jesus did what was needed. Christ alone. And see, it's not just a historical fact. It is personally life-changing, and it brings a hunger to our lives. Becky and I just the other evening took our two oldest grandsons out to eat uh, at a Bob Evans. One's six and the other's five, and we told them they could have whatever they wanted to eat. And first they're looking at the kids' menu and they're picking out something, but then they saw the picture of something in the adult menu, and that looked. And so they they said that's what we want. And he said, "You guys sure?" "Yeah, that's what we want." Both of them wanted it. It was like. I don't know, four or five pancakes, two eggs, two sausage patties, and hash browns. And I'm not kidding, those guys, they sat there and they ate, and I, they, they nearly finished all of it. It's like, how in the world? You know? And I, I feel sorry for their parents because when they're teenagers, I, I cannot imagine. They came pretty close. We should have a hunger to know Jesus more. That truth also brings hope to our lives. If it's not true, there's no hope. If it's Christ plus anyone or Christ plus anything, we're done. Oh, let's go home, let's close the doors, turn out the lights. We're done. But if it's Christ alone... Our hope is real, and our future is sure. Christ alone, he brings confidence in a life of uncertainty. He brings peace in a life of confusion. He brings contentment in a life of dissatisfaction. He brings a desire to live obediently in lives of sin. He's what we should build our lives on. He is our cornerstone. I mean, if we're building on anything else, we're missing out. We're missing out on the greatest source of strength and peace and comfort we could ever find. So let me ask you, what is it you're building your life on? Some of us us here today, we've never turned to him in faith. I'm, I'm asking you, please consider turning to him. Turn to him. Ask him to save you, and he will. And some of us, We've already asked him into our lives, but for some crazy reason, somehow, we slip into trying to find our fulfillment in in rules or in some experience or in some bit of supposed knowledge that we're relying on. Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives, and he's all that we need. Fix your eyes on him. Focus on him. Christ alone. All we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace and thank you for bringing us to yourself. And your son, Father, is our hope, is our peace, is our confidence God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us and bringing us to yourself. We pray for anyone who might be here who hasn't taken that step of faith, Father, that they would do that today. And for your children, God, that we would be uh, focused on Jesus. Our lives would be built on him. Thank you for all the blessings you've given to us as your children. And thank you that we know for sure our eternal destiny because of Christ alone. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.